Part 2 of My French Master by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a Weekly Journal, number 196, 24th of December, 1853. My French Master, in two chapters, chapter the second. My father insisted upon driving Monsieur de Chalabre in his gig to the nearest town through which the London mail passed, and, during the short time that elapsed before my father was ready, he told us something more about Chalabre. He had never spoken of his ancestral home to any of us before. We knew little of his station in his own country. General Ashburton had met with him in Paris, in a set where a man was judged of by his wit and talent for society, and general brilliance of character, rather than by his wealth and hereditary position. Now we learned for the first time that he was heir to considerable estates in Normandy, to an old Chateau Chalabre, all of which he had forfeited by his emigration, it was true, but that was under another regime. Ah, if my dear friend, your poor mother, were alive now, I could send her such slips of rare and splendid roses from Chalabre. Often when I did see her nursing up some poor little specimen, I longed in secret for my rose garden at Chalabre. And the orangery! Ah, Miss Fanny, the bride must come to Chalabre who wishes for a beautiful wreath. This was an allusion to my sister's engagement, a fact well known to him as the faithful family friend. My father came back in high spirits, and began to plan that very evening how to arrange his crops for the ensuing year, so as best to spare time for a visit to Chateau Chalabre. And as for us, I think we believed there was no need to delay our French journey beyond the autumn of the present year. Monsieur de Chalabre came back in a couple of days. A little damped, we girls fancied, though we hardly liked to speak about it to my father. However, Monsieur de Chalabre explained it to us by saying that he had found London more crowded and busy than he had expected, that it was smoky and dismal after leaving the country, where the trees were already coming into leaf. And when we pressed him a little more respecting the reception at Grion, he laughed at himself for having forgotten the tendency of the Count de Provence in former days to become stout and so being dismayed at the mass of corpulence which Louis the Eighteenth presented as he toiled up the long drawing-room of the hotel. "'But what did he say to you?' Fanny asked. "'How did he receive you when you were presented?' A flash of pain passed over his face, but it was gone directly. "'Oh, His Majesty did not recognise my name.' It was hardly to be expected he would, though it is a name of note in Normandy, and I have... Well, that is worth nothing. The Duc de Duras reminded him of a circumstance or two which I had almost hoped His Majesty would not have forgotten. But I myself forgot the pressure of long years of exile. It was no wonder he did not remember me. He said he hoped to see me at the Tuileries. His hopes are my laws. I go to prepare for my departure. If His Majesty does not need my sword, I turn it into a ploughshare at Chalabre. Ah, my friend, I will not forget there all the agricultural science I have learned from you. 
a gift of a hundred pounds would not have pleased my father so much as this last speech. He began forthwith to inquire about the nature of the soil, etc., in a way which made our poor Monsieur de Chalabre shrug his shoulders in despairing ignorance. "'Never mind,' said my father. "'Rome was not built in a day. It was a long time before I learned all that I know now.' I was afraid I could not leave home this autumn, but I perceive you'll need someone to advise you about laying out the ground for next year's crops. So Monsieur de Chalabre left our neighbourhood, with the full understanding that we were to pay him a visit in his Norman chateau in the following September. Nor was he content until he had persuaded everyone who had shown him kindness to promise him a visit at some appointed time. As for his old landlord at the farm, the comely dame and buxom Susan, they, we found, were to be franked there and back, under the pretence that the French dairymaids had no notion of cleanliness, any more than that the French farming men were judges of stock. So it was absolutely necessary to bring over someone from England to put the affairs of the Chateau Chalabre in order, and Farmer Dobson and his wife considered the favour quite reciprocal. For some time we did not hear from our friend. The war had made the post between France and England very uncertain, so we were obliged to wait, and we tried to be patient, but somehow our autumn visit to France was silently given up, and my father gave us long expositions of the disordered state of affairs in a country which had suffered so much as France, and lectured us severely on the folly of having expected to hear so soon. We knew all the while that the exposition was repeated to soothe his own impatience, and that the admonition to patience was what he felt that he himself was needing. At last the letter came. There was a brave attempt at cheerfulness in it, which nearly made me cry more than any complaints would have done. Monsieur de Chalabre had hoped to retain his commission as sous-lieutenant in the Garde du Corps, a commission signed by Louis the Sixteenth himself in 1791. But the regiment was to be remodelled or reformed, I forget which, and Monsieur de Chalabre assured us that his was not the only case where applicants had been refused. He had then tried for a commission in the Sainte Suisse, the Garde du Port, the Mousquetaire, but all were full. Was it not a glorious thing for France to have so many brave sons ready to fight on the side of honour and loyalty? To which question Fanny replied that it was a shame, and my father, after a grunt or two, comforted himself by saying that Monsieur de Chalabre would have the more time to attend to his neglected estate. That winter was full of incidents in our home as it often happens when a family has seemed stationary and secure from change for years, and then, at last, one important event happens, another is sure to follow. Fanny's lover returned, and they were married, and left us alone, my father and I. Her husband's ship was stationed in the Mediterranean, and she was to go and live at Malta, with some of his relations there. I knew not if it was the agitation of parting with her, but my father was stricken down from health into confirmed invalidism by a paralytic stroke soon after her departure, and my interests were confined to the fluctuating reports of a sick room. 
I did not care for the foreign intelligence which was shaking Europe with an universal tremor. My hopes, my fears, were centred in one frail human body, my dearly beloved, my most loving father. I kept a letter in my pocket for days from Monsieur de Chalabre, unable to find the time to decipher his French hieroglyphics. At last I read it aloud to my poor father, rather as a test of his power of enduring interest than because I was impatient to know what it contained. The news in it was depressing enough, as everything else seemed to be that gloomy winter. A rich manufacturer of Rouen had bought the Chateau Chalabre, forfeited to the nation by its former possessor's emigration. His son, Monsieur Dufay, was well affected towards Louis XVIII, at least as long as his government was secure and promised to be stable, so as not to affect the dyeing and selling of turkey-red wools. And so, the natural, legal consequence was that Monsieur Dufay, fils, was not to be disturbed in his purchased and paid-for property. My father cared to hear of this disappointment to our poor friend, cared just for one day, and forgot all about it the next. Then came the return from Elba, the hurrying events of that spring, the Battle of Waterloo, and, to my poor father, in his second childhood, the choice of a daily pudding was far more important than all. One Sunday, in that August of 1815, I went to church, it was many weeks since I had been able to leave my father for so long a time before. Since I had been last there to worship, it seemed as if my youth had passed away, gone without a warning, leaving no trace behind. After service, I went through the long grass to the unfrequented part of the churchyard where my dear mother lay buried. A garland of brilliant yellow immortelle lay on her grave and the unwanted offering took me by surprise. I knew of the foreign custom, although I had never seen the kind of wreath before. I took it up, and read one word in the black floral letters. It was simply, Adieu. I knew from the first moment I saw it, that Monsieur de Chalabre must have returned to England. Such a token of regard was like him, and could spring from no one else but I wondered a little that we had never heard or seen anything of him, nothing, in fact, since Lady Ashburton had told me that her husband had met with him in Belgium, hurrying to offer himself as a volunteer to one of the eleven generals appointed by the Duc de Feltre to receive such applications. General Ashburton himself had, since this, died at Brussels in consequence of wounds received at Waterloo, as the recollection of all these circumstances gathered in my mind, I found I was drawing near the field-path which led out of the direct road home to Father Dobson's, and thither I suddenly determined to go, and hear if they had heard anything respecting their former lodger. As I went up the garden walk leading to the house, I caught Monsieur de Chalabre's eye. He was gazing abstractedly out of the window, of what used to be his sitting-room. In an instant he had joined me in the garden. If my youth had flown, his youth and middle age as well had vanished altogether. He looked older by at least twenty years than when he had left us twelve months ago. 
How much of this was owing to the change in the arrangement of his dress I cannot tell. He had formerly been remarkably dainty in all these things. Now he was careless, even to the verge of slovenliness. He asked after my sister, after my father, in a manner which evinced the deepest, most respectful interest. But somehow it appeared to me as if he hurried question after question, rather to stop any inquiries which I, in my turn, might wish to make. I return here to my duties, to my only duties. The good God has not seen me fit to undertake any higher. Henceforth I am the faithful French teacher, the diligent, punctual French teacher, nothing more. But I do hope to teach the French language as becomes a gentleman and a Christian, to do my best. Henceforth, the grammar and syntax are my estate, my coat of arms. He said this with a proud humility which prevented any reply. I could only change the subject and urge him to come and see my poor sick father. He replied, To visit the sick, that is my duty as well as my pleasure. For the mere society, I renounce all that. That is now beyond my position to which I accommodate myself with all my strength. Accordingly, when he came to spend an hour with my father, he brought a small bundle of printed papers, announcing the terms on which Monsieur Chalabre, the de, was dropped now and for evermore, was desirous of teaching French, and a little paragraph at the bottom of the page solicited the patronage of schools. Now this was a great coming down. In former days, non-teaching at schools had been the line which marked that Monsieur de Chalabre had taken up teaching rather as an amateur profession than with any intention of devoting his life to it. He respectfully asked me to distribute these papers where I thought fit. I say respectfully, advisedly, there was none of the old deferential gallantry as offered by a gentleman to a lady, his equal in birth and fortune. Instead, there was the matter-of-fact request and statement which a workman offers to his employer. Only in my father's room he was the former Monsieur de Chalabre. He seemed to understand how vain would be all attempts to recount or explain the circumstances which had led him so decidedly to take a lower level in society. To my father, to the day of his death, Monsieur de Chalabre maintained the old easy footing, assumed a gaiety which he never even pretended to feel anywhere else, listened to my father's childish interests with a true and kindly sympathy for which I ever felt grateful, although he purposely put a deferential reserve between him and me as a barrier to any expression of such feeling on my part. His former lessons had been held in such high esteem by those who were privileged to receive them, that he was soon sought after on all sides. The schools of the two principal county towns put forward their claims, and considered it a favour to receive his instructions. Morning, noon and night he was engaged, even if he had not proudly withdrawn himself from all merely society engagements, he would have had no leisure for them. His only visits were paid to my father, who looked for them with a kind of childish longing. One day, to my surprise, he asked to be allowed to speak to me for an instant alone. He stood silent for a moment, turning his hat in his hand. 
You have a right to know. You, my first pupil. Next Tuesday, I marry myself to Miss Susan Dobson. Good, respectable woman, to whose happiness I mean to devote my life, or as much of it as is not occupied with the duties of instruction. He looked up at me, expecting congratulations, perhaps, but I was too much stunned with my surprise. The buxom, red-armed, apple-cheeked Susan, who, when she blushed, blushed the colour of beetroot, who did not know a word of French, who regarded the nation, always excepting the gentlemen before me, as frog-eating mounseers, the national enemies of England. I afterwards thought that perhaps this very ignorance constituted one of her charms. No word, nor allusion, nor expressive silence, nor regretful sympathetic sighs could remind Monsieur de Chalabre of the bitter past, which he was evidently striving to forget. And, most assuredly, never man had a more devoted and admiring wife than poor Susan made Monsieur de Chalabre. She was a little awed by him, to be sure, never quite at her ease before him, but I imagine husbands do not dislike such a tribute to their Jupitership. Madame Chalabre received my call, after their marriage, with a degree of sober, rustic, happy dignity, which I could not have foreseen in Susan Dobson. They had taken a small cottage on the borders of the forest. It had a garden round it, and the cow, pigs and poultry, which were to be her charge, found their keep in the forest. She had a rough country servant to assist her in looking after them, and in what scanty leisure he had, her husband attended to the garden and the bees. Madame Chalabre took me over the neatly furnished cottage with evident pride. Moussaia, as she called him, had done this. Moussaia had fitted up that. Moussaia was evidently a man of resource. In a little closet of the dressing-room belonging to Moussaia, there hung a pencil-drawing, elaborately finished to the condition of a bad pocket-book engraving. It caught my eye and I lingered to look at it. It represented a high, narrow house of considerable size, with four pepper-box turrets at each corner, and a stiff avenue formed the foreground. Chateau Chalabre, said I, inquisitively. I never asked, my companion replied. Messiah does not always like to be asked questions. It is the picture of some place he's very fond of, for he won't let me dust it for fear I should smear it. Monsieur de Chalabre's marriage did not diminish the number of his visits to my father. Until that beloved parent's death, he was faithful in doing all he could to lighten the gloom of the sick room. But a chasm which he had opened separated any present intercourse with him from the free, unreserved friendship that had existed formerly. And yet, for his sake, I used to go and see his wife. I could not forget early days, nor the walks to the top of the clover field, nor the daily poses, nor my mother's dear regard for the emigrant gentleman, nor a thousand little kindnesses which he had shown to my absent sister and myself. He did not forget either, in the closed and sealed chambers of his heart. So, for his sake, I tried to become a friend to his wife, and she learned to look upon me as such. It was my employment in the sick chamber to make clothes for the little expected Chalabra baby, and its mother would fain, 
as she told me, have asked me to carry the little infant to the font, but that her husband somewhat austerely reminded her that they ought to seek a marraine among those of their own station in society. But I regarded the pretty little Susan as my godchild nevertheless in my heart, and secretly pledged myself always to take an interest in her. Not two months after my father's death, a sister was born, and the human heart in Monsieur de Chalabre subdued his pride. The child was to bear the pretty name of his French mother, although France could find no place for him, and had cast him out. That youngest little girl was called M.A. When my father died, Fanny and her husband urged me to leave Brookfield and come and live with them at Valletta. The estate was left to us, but an eligible tenant offered himself, and my health, which had suffered materially during my long nursing, did render it desirable for me to seek some change to a warmer climate. So I went abroad, ostensibly for a year's residence only, but somehow that year has grown into a lifetime. Malta and Genoa have been my dwelling places ever since. Occasionally, it is true, I have paid visits to England, but I have never looked upon it as my home since I left it thirty years ago. During these visits I have seen the Chalabre. He had become more absorbed in his occupation than ever, had published a French grammar on some new principle, of which he presented me with a copy, taking some pains to explain how it was to be used. Madame looked plump and prosperous. The farm which was under her management had thriven, and as for the two daughters, behind their English shyness, they had a good deal of French piquancy and esprit. I induced them to take some walks with me, with a view of asking them some questions which should make our friendship an individual reality, not merely an hereditary feeling. But the little monkeys put me through my catechism, and asked me innumerable questions about France, which they evidently regarded as their country. How do you know all about French habits and customs? asked I. Does Monsieur de... does your father talk to you much about France? Sometimes, when we are alone with him, never when anyone is by, answered Susan, the elder, a grave, noble-looking girl of twenty or thereabouts. I think he does not speak about France before my mother, for fear of hurting her. And I think, said little M.A., that he does not speak at all when he can help it. It is only when his heart gets too full with recollections that he is obliged to talk to us because many of the thoughts could not be said in English. Then I suppose you are two famous French scholars. Oh, yes, Papa always speaks to us in French. It is our own language. But with all their devotion to their father and to his country, they were the most affectionate, dutiful daughters to their mother. They were her companions, her comforts in the pleasant household labours. Most practical, useful young women, but in a privacy not the less sacred, because it was understood rather than prescribed, they kept all the enthusiasm, all the romance of their nature for their father. They were the confidants of that poor exile's yearnings for France, the eager listeners for what he chose to tell them of his early days. His words wrought up Susan to make the resolution that if ever she felt herself free from home duties and responsibilities, she would become a sister of charity, 
like Anne-Marguerite de Chalabre, her father's great-aunt and model of woman's sanctity. As for Aimé, come what might, she never would leave her father, and that was all she was clear about in picturing her future. Three years ago I was in Paris, an English friend of mine who lives there, English by birth but married to a German professor and very French in manners and ways, asked me to come to her house one evening. I was far from well and disinclined to stir out. Oh, but come, said she, I have a good reason, really a tempting reason. Perhaps this very evening a piece of poetical justice will be done in my salon. A living romance. Now, can you resist? What is it? said I for she was rather in the habit of exaggerating trifles into romances. A young lady is coming, not in the first youth, but still young, very pretty, daughter of a French émigré whom my husband knew in Belgium, and who has lived in England ever since. I beg your pardon, but what is her name? interrupted I, roused to interest. De Chalabre, do you know her? Yes, I am much interested in her. I will gladly come to meet her. How long has she been in Paris? Is it Susan or Aimé? Now, I am not to be balked of the pleasure of telling you my romance, my hoped-for bit of poetical justice. You must be patient, and you will have answers to all your questions. I sank back in my easy chair. Some of my friends are rather long-winded, and it is as well to be settled in a comfortable position before they begin to talk. I told you a minute ago, that my husband had become acquainted with Monsieur de Chalabre in Belgium in 1815. They have kept up a correspondence ever since. Not a very brisk one, it is true, for Monsieur de Chalabre was a French master in England and my husband a professor in Paris. But still they managed to let each other know how they were going on and what they were doing, once if not twice every year. For myself, I never saw Monsieur de Chalabre. I know him well, said I. I have known him all my life. A year ago his wife died. She was an English woman. She had had a long and suffering illness, and his eldest daughter had devoted herself to her with the patient sweetness of an angel, as he told us, and I can well believe. But after her mother's death, the world, it seems, became distasteful to her. She had been inured to the half-lights, the hushed voices, the constant thoughts for others required in a sick-room, and the noise and rough bustle of healthy people jarred upon her. So she pleaded with her father to allow her to become a sister of charity. She told him that he would have given a welcome to any suitor who came to offer to marry her and bear her away from her home and her father and sister. And now, when she was called by religion, would he grudge to part with her? He gave his consent, if not his full approbation, and he wrote to my husband to beg me to receive her here while we sought out a convent into which she could be received. She has been with me two months, and endeared herself to me unspeakably. She goes home next week, unless... But I beg your pardon, did you not say she wished to become a sister of charity? It is true, but she was too old to be admitted into their order. She is eight and twenty. It has been a grievous disappointment to her. She has borne it very patiently and meekly but I can see how deeply she has felt it. And now for my romance. My husband had a pupil some ten years ago, a Monsieur Dufay, a clever, scientific young man, 
one of the first merchants of Rouen. His grandfather purchased Monsieur de Chalabre's ancestral estate. The present Monsieur de Fay came on business to Paris two or three days ago and invited my husband to a little dinner, and somehow this story of Suzette Chalabre came out in consequence of inquiries my husband was making for an escort to take her to England. Monsieur Dufay seemed interested with the story and asked my husband if he might pay his respects to me some evening when Suzette should be in. And so he's coming tonight. He and a friend of his, who was at the dinner party the other day, will you come? I went more in the hope of seeing Susan Chalabre and hearing some news about my early home than with any expectation of poetical justice. And in that I was right. And yet I was wrong. Susan Chalabre was a grave, gentlewoman of an enthusiastic and devoted appearance, not unlike that portrait of his daughter which arrests every eye in Adi Sheffer's sacred pictures. She was silent and sad. Her cherished plan of life was uprooted. She talked to me a little in a soft and friendly manner, answering any questions I asked. But as for the gentleman, her indifference and reserve made it impossible for them to enter into any conversation with her, and the meeting was indisputably flat. Oh, my romance! My poetical justice! Before the evening was half over, I would have given up all my castles in the air for one well-sustained conversation of ten minutes long. Now don't laugh at me, for I can't bear it tonight. Such was my friend's parting speech. I did not see her again for two days. The third she came in, glowing with excitement. You may congratulate me after all. If it was not poetical justice, it is prosaic justice. And, except for the empty romance, that is a better thing. What do you mean, said I? Surely Monsieur de Fay has not proposed for Susan. No, but that charming Monsieur de Fraise, his friend, has. That is to say, not proposed, but spoken. No, not spoken, but it seems he asked Monsieur de Fay, whose confidant he was, if he was intending to proceed in his idea of marrying Suzette. And on hearing that he was not, Monsieur de Fraise said that he should come to us and ask us to put him in the way of prosecuting the acquaintance, for that he had been charmed with her. Looks, voice, silence, he admires them all, and we have arranged that he is to be the escort to England. He has business there, he says, and as for Suzette, she knows nothing of all this, of course, for who dared tell her? All her anxiety is to return home, and the first person travelling to England will satisfy her, if it does us. And after all, Monsieur de Fraise lives within five leagues of the Chateau Chalabre, so she can go and see the old place whenever she will. When I went to bid Susan good-bye, she looked as unconscious and dignified as ever. No idea of a lover had ever crossed her mind. She considered Monsieur de Fraise as a kind of necessary encumbrance for the journey. I had not much hopes for him, and yet he was an agreeable man enough, and my friends told me that his character stood firm and high. In three months I was settled for the winter in Rome. In four I heard that the marriage of Susan Chalabre had taken place. 
what were the intermediate steps between the cold civil indifference with which i had last seen her regarding her travelling companion and the full love which such a woman as suzette chalabre must love a man before she could call him husband i never learnt i wrote to my old french master to congratulate him as i believed i honestly might on his daughter's marriage it was some months before i received his answer it was dear friend dear old pupil dear child of the beloved dead i am an old man of eighty and i tremble towards the grave i cannot write many words but my own hand shall bid you come to the home of Emme and her husband. They tell me to ask you to come and see the old father's birthplace while he is yet alive to show it to you. I have the very apartment in Chateau Chalabre that was mine when I was a boy, and my mother came in to bless me every night. Suzanne lives near us. The good God bless my sons-in-law, Bertrand de Fraise and Alphonse du Fay as he has blessed me all my life long. I think of your father and mother, my dear, and you must think no harm when I tell you I have had a masses said for the repose of their souls. If I make a mistake, God will forgive. My heart could have interpreted this letter, even without the pretty letter of Emma and her husband which accompanied it, and which told how, when Monsieur Dufay came over to his friend's wedding, he had seen the younger sister, and in her seen his fate. The soft, caressing, timid Emma was more to his taste than the grave and stately Susan. Yet little Emma managed to rule imperiously at Chateau Chalabre, or rather, her husband was delighted to indulge her every wish, while Susan, in her grand way, made rather a pomp of her conjugal obedience. But they were both good wives, good daughters. This last summer you may have seen an old, old man, dressed in grey, with white flowers in his buttonhole, gathered by a grandchild as fair as they, leading an elderly lady about the grounds of Chateau Chalabre, with tottering, unsteady eagerness of gait. Here, said he to me, just here, my mother bade me adieu when first I went to join my regiment. I was impatient to go. I mounted. I rode to yonder great chestnut, and then, looking back, I saw my mother's sorrowful countenance. I sprang off, threw the reins to the groom, and ran back for one more embrace. My brave boy, she said, my own. Be faithful to God and your king. I never saw her more, but I shall see her soon, and I think I may tell her I have been faithful both to my God and my king. Before now he has told his mother all. End of My French Master by Elizabeth Gaskell